Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to follow on from my episode last week, which is about changes in borrowing capacity and how borrowing capacity is really tight. So this week, I'd like to talk about does a property's rental yield materially change your borrowing capacity? Thinking about this topic reminded me about the first article I wrote that was published in a national magazine uh, almost 19 years ago, so uh, it certainly made me feel old, but the article was published in a magazine called Australian Property Investor that used to be you know, quite a, a really good magazine, unfortunately it, it doesn't exist anymore, um, hopefully not because of my contribution. In any case, the article was called, the title of the article was called Unlimited Finance. And if you want to read it, uh, of course, there's a link in the show notes. But the thesis behind the article was that investing in high yield properties doesn't materially change your borrowing capacity. You see, there was a school of thought out there at the time that, you know, you should target high yield properties and even positive cash flow properties because it will extend your borrowing capacity and investing in more properties will help you build more wealth. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a theme that really hasn't disappeared. You see it every now and again. Um, and it kind of ties in with my borrowing capacity conversation last week. Uh, and what I want to do is further explore how sensitive is borrowing capacity to rental yield uh, and does targeting higher rental yield properties that gives you greater borrowing capacity, does it work? Does it ultimately help you build more wealth? So just as a little recap, last week I talked about, you know, borrowing capacity is probably the tightest it's been in 20 years. The main reason for that is that lenders are adding a 3% uh, buffer on top of the interest rate that they charge you in order to test your affordability. So I guess what the what essentially the banks are doing is factoring in that interest rates will rise another 3% from here. Uh, which I think is pretty unlikely and and certainly no one is predicting that. Um, and arguably that uh, benchmark uh, should, or that buffer amount should come down a little bit. Um, it's interesting actually, I mean, reflecting on last week's podcast, that um, uh, whilst we make comparisons to, you know, what the benchmark interest rate was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, we should acknowledge that there's been a whole bunch of other changes that have um, reduced one's borrowing capacity as well in terms of you know a greater focus on living expenses, um, uh, the treatment of credit card limits, you know, all those th- those things have actually changed over the last five years. So focusing on just the benchmark interest rate, I mean, tells a bit of a story, but uh, really there's other things that have impacted. So um, if a two and a half percent benchmark interest rate was uh, acceptable ten years ago. Well, factoring the fact that we've we've made a lot of changes that have restricted borrowing capacity in addition to that, then 2.5% is probably uh, well and truly sufficient in today's market. But anyway, I'm digressing away from today's topic, so I don't want to prattle on about that. But if we think about then, um, uh, you know, that we've got to, to in order to uh, qualify for a loan, uh, we've got to prove that we can repay it at an interest rate that's 3% higher than the current rate today. And if it's an investment loan that's interest only, uh, loan terms are 30 years, normally interest only term is five. So we've actually got to demonstrate that we can repay the loan on a principal interest basis over 25 years. 
And so if you do the calculation based on current interest rates, uh, that means that a, uh, a rental property needs to um, produce a gross rental yield of about 13% for it to be neutral on borrowing capacity. Now, there's not too many residential investment properties out there that are grossing uh, 13%, I can assure you. So in essence, every property is going to be negative on your borrowing capacity because the rental income uh, will be a lot less than the sensitised repayments that they use in order to calculate borrowing capacity. So therefore, even properties that are character- characterised as high yield, you know, if they, they're yielding 4 to 6 7%, Per annum, a lot of investors will look at that and go, well, they're, they're actually paying for themselves, their positive cash flow. Still, from a borrowing capacity, they are actually significantly reducing your borrowing capacity, particularly on today's rules. Now, the reason for me um, doing this podcast episode is I was talking to a, a property investor a couple of weeks ago that had invested in three properties. And the aggregate value of these three properties was uh, $1.2 million dollars. And the portfolio had about a million dollars worth of debt against it, so 200000 odd of equity. And the portfolio was generating 5.2% uh, in terms of a gross rental yield, which is, which is not bad. And uh, a lot of those loans were on fixed rates that were set up a couple of years ago or a year or so ago. So the portfolio is actually positive cash flow. Anyway, I used this client's position as a scenario to sort of work out would they be better off spreading that $1.2 million across three different properties or would they be better off actually putting it into one property even if that one property generated a lower income yield? Um, so in terms of the assumptions that I used that weren't perfectly aligned to this particular client, but just to give you an idea, I assumed that each spouse earned $100,000 pre-tax, that uh, they had a home loan of about 350000 that they spent $5,500 a month on living expenses and they had just one credit card with a limit of of $5,000. And so I did some borrowing capacity calculations and worked out if they can achieve an average yield of 5.5%, which is pretty close to the client that I was talking about, talking to, um, then these clients can conceptually borrow about a million dollars. If they can achieve a gross gross rental yield of 3%, so less, uh, their borrowing capacity drops uh, by 18.5% to 815000 And if they achieve a gross rental yield of 2%, uh, then they can invest uh, $750,000, which is a 25% reduction. So I guess if I looked at or compared a high yield to a low yield portfolio, it has around about a 25% impact, or at least in this scenario, on borrowing capacity. Now, I think it's important to think about or consider what do you have to do in order to achieve or generate a high yield from a property portfolio? And essentially, uh, renters will pay more for better or larger accommodation. Um, The locality of the property will have an impact, but really the accommodation finish and size is really the big issue. Uh, whereas uh, property investors, I should say, in my view, should be paying for land value. Land value doesn't have an impact on rental income, but it has an impact on capital growth rate. So really, in order to uh, target a portfolio that has a high yield, you really need to spend proportionately more money on building value than you do on land value in order to generate that higher yield. So I used the same assumptions I used last week in my borrowing capacity 
um, uh, podcast, which you'll, you you can obviously refer back to, and calculated what um, long-term wealth would a client or an investor generate if they invested a million dollars, eight hundred and fifteen thousand, or seven hundred and fifty thousand by investing in either a high yield portfolio, a medium yield portfolio, or a low yield portfolio, assuming that, or taking into account the holding costs over that uh, a 30-year period, then selling that asset in 30 years' time and paying whatever capital gains tax, and, and using exactly the same assumptions across the board across those three scenarios. The only thing I'm changing is the actual rental yield, the amount of income that you're getting. And I worked out that a low-yield uh, strategy will generate uh, almost double the the return after tax than what a high yield will do. Uh, even though in the high yield we're investing a million dollars, that's a, you know buying a million dollar property or spending a million dollars across two or three properties, versus only seven hundred and fifty in the in the low yield scenario. So we're actually investing twenty five percent less. But because of the much higher compounding capital growth rate, we're actually producing a much higher return. And that this is why essentially what I've been suggesting over time is that focusing on rental yield will invite you to make a really costly mistake in terms of wealth accumulation. And in fact, focusing on rental yield, yes, it will change your borrowing capacity a little bit, but not to the extent that, um, that is necessary uh, in order to generate more wealth. It's also worth noting that the land value amounts uh, that we invested in or that I assume we invested in weren't that different. So for example, with the million dollar budget, in order to achieve a 5.5% gross rental yield, I assume that million was spent $550,000 in the building value and four hundred and fifty in land value. So a 55% building value component Whereas with the lower yield uh, property, um, we spent uh, 750000 uh, and I assumed that it's about two-thirds land value and one-third building value, so about $500,000 of land value in that low yield scenario. So a, a very land-heavy style property, which obviously results in a lower yield, but in both those scenarios, the land values weren't that different. It's the long-term capital growth rate that was the, the, the biggest difference. Um, and the analysis, I think, demonstrates that, that more is not often better. You know, more assets or, or, or uh, uh, more properties, you know, don't, doesn't necessarily translate to more income. It's really about the quality of those assets and the makeup of their long-term return or expected long-term return. Now, of course, I acknowledge that low-yield rental properties um, uh, generate a much stronger negative cash flow, which needs to be considered, of course. It's not going to suit everyone. Um, uh, you've got to think about how you're going to afford that cash flow. You've got to set your budget um, correctly. Uh, you've got to make sure that that um, suits your your um, stage of life as well. I mean, if you want to enter into retirement in five years going and buying a low-yield uh, property, in fact, maybe going and buying a property isn't necessarily going to be the right thing uh, because it's going to be sucking out cash flow at a time when you actually want to reduce working hours or retire. So you've got to think about the cash flow cost. But what I've done in this analysis, I've really just focused on what is that what what strategy is going to generate the most amount of wealth, which I think is really the most sensible way to approach a question like this 
rather than um, trying to manipulate a strategy to fit your circumstances, right? You've got to really think about what is the best strategy and which of those best strategies suit your circumstances the best. Now, the key assumption behind this analysis is I've assumed in all three scenarios, all three scenarios are going to generate a total return of 10% over the next, on average over the next 30 years. Now, the only way a high-yield property can actually produce more wealth in this scenario that I've contemplated is if we assume the total return will be more than 10% over the long run. So that is a high-yield property will also produce a lot of capital growth or maybe the same capital growth. And if you made that assumption, of course, it will generate um, a lot more wealth than the the low-yield property. Uh, But I think uh, I I would caution people to um, make that assumption. Uh, I don't think that there's too many asset classes out there that you could conservatively assume that that are going to generate more than 10% in total return over many decade uh, periods of time. They might in a particular year or a couple of years in a row uh, that it's not impossible for for assets to perform uh, well above that amount. But in terms of making or developing a long-term investment strategy, I think it's very prudent to, you know, to to make sure that we've got uh, conservative but realistic assumptions uh, and we make decisions based on the outcomes that those assumptions paint. So I want to leave you with, uh, I guess, three insights or observations you know, that you can um, use when making your own financial decisions based on this analysis and, uh, of course, my comments in uh, last week's uh, episode as well. The first one is the number of properties you own really doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, people think uh, buying several properties is better, But really, the reality is I'd rather own one investment grade property rather than three average quality ones. Quality is really the most important factor. And of course, if you can um, spread your risk uh, geographically or different types of properties, uh, that's fine. Of course, uh, that in of itself isn't a bad thing to do. Uh, But in terms of developing a strategy, it's not really about the race to 10 properties or three properties or whatever it is, I'd rather have one great one, as I said, than um, multiple average ones. Second observation or a bit of advice I'd have or insight is don't manipulate your investment strategy to suit your borrowing capacity. Instead, determine your borrowing capacity to ascertain your investment budget and then allocate that investment budget as wisely as possible. If it means you can only afford one property, then so be it. If it means that you actually shouldn't invest in property, then so be it. Um, don't try and uh, think about, well, this is my goal, 10 properties. How do, how do I then select those 10 properties so that my borrowing capacity is extended to the extent to which I need it? Because doing it that way will invite you to make some pretty costly long-term mistakes. Third and finally, if you're going to invest in property, Uh, target a property as close to his investment grade as possible as that your budget will allow. Now, if you're lucky enough that your budget is one to one and a half million dollars, you can probably buy an investment grade house, you know, somewhere in a capital city that and, and you'll probably have to not have to make too many compromises in the selection of that asset. 
But if your budget doesn't extend to a million to a million and a half, then you are going to have to make some compromises. But make as fewer compromises as possible. Get something as close to investment grade as possible, which really means focusing on an asset that has a, a good level of scarcity, that has a really strong land value component. Uh, so the scarcity and that land value component will hopefully conspire to generating uh, a lot of capital growth for you over the long run. Okay, that's it for me for this week. Until next week, bye for now.